0: Hey, everybody. Are you ready to talk music? Muddy and I are. We love this stuff. My musical instrument of choice is the bass guitar. My primary gig bass is a Fender Precision. When I took it for the first time to a jam session with my band, it was unanimous by the other band members that I should put my extra basses away and make the P bass my lead dog. Oops! I'm sorry, Muddy. You're my lead dog. The P is my lead instrument. Yeah. You okay? I guess I have to give him some extra treats tonight. I bring the bass up because our guest this week is Mike Dane, best known for his fantastic bass work with Andy Timmons. He produces, engineers, and plays with other artists as well. As you will hear with the two songs he plays in the show, Mike can truly smoke a bass guitar. We conducted the interview at his studio. His dog and Muddy sat back and took in our conversation. The mixing board, instruments, and wall of compression in the studio were visually and sonically impressive. (laughs) Get ready, we're going to dig deep into the world of bass with Mike Dane. Before we launch the show, I want to give a big shout-out to some friends that just had a very tough and scary day. There were a lot of tears, stressed-out nerves, thoughts and prayers involved, but in the end, everything worked out. Meredith, Kyle, and Jeffrey... Big thoughts are still coming your way, okay? I mean, big thoughts. Amy, can you get us started?
1: This is the Dogger and Muddy Music Show. Listen up; it's all about the music. Let's check in on the artists, songs, and people behind the scenes. Are you listening?
0: Being a bassist. I can truly tell you campers that muddy and i are in a candy store mike dane's home studio sitting right behind him is is a big mixer there's fender jazz basses a golden jazz bass there's all kinds of pedals and amps i'm sitting by the compressor wall of fame here i am excited to have my first bass interview bass artist interview with mike dane mike is best known for his touring and recording work with andy timmons but he's been the right hand man to several artists over the years sarah hickman Karma Menza, sparrows, vanilla ice, Simon Phillips, one of my favorite and most intricate drummers, and and many many other artists. Hey, you started out a little different from most bass players. You didn't walk into the first jam with your friends as the weakest guitar player, thus being delegated to play the bass. I, I would assume you grew up on a musical family, but tell us
1: through your early journey into music. didn't really have a musical family, actually. There was a piano in the house. When I was about five or six, I would hear something on the radio or a song I was playing on the little record player, and I just tried to plink out the melody, and it became very natural to me. I just started figuring out songs on the piano, and Without music? Um, yeah, no music, just all by ear. I just uh, started finding my, my way through that. Eventually picked up saxophone when I was in fifth grade. Right. And once again, I was not very good at reading music, but because of my ear, uh, I would listen to the guy next to me and just play what he was playing. Really? He, yeah, he would learn how to read. And then I, uh, I, had, I had this great band teacher. I think his name was Jack Horner. I'm, it was Horner, but I can't remember his first name.
0: Little Jack Horner. Little Jack in.
1: Horner. I was playing along one day, and I wasn't playing exactly what the guy next to me. I was playing a harmony, just something I heard in my head that might have sounded cool Ooh. against what uh, the guy next to me was playing. He stopped. He goes, Mike? I go, yeah. I don't know what you're playing there, but it sounds really good, so keep doing that. He He wasn't mad at me. He wanted to encourage... That's I mean, yeah, that's unusual. Yeah, the the improv aspect. He would give me solo spots, really. Where, um, it, you know, when they have a concert and so they they'd have a little section and just maybe a blues progression, and I would just you know take a few bars over that. And, and this had, when you were 10, 11, 12. Yeah, yeah, I was about in fifth and sixth grade. So he he really encouraged me. To this day, I think that was a big factor in me wanting to keep going. You know, because I, I was getting. Uh, really positive feedback.
0: That's nice. Because a lot of instructors, this is the way we're going to do it.
1: Yeah. And then I ran, and when I got into middle school, uh, I had a complete opposite experience where uh, you know, the, I had the conductor who was, he'd maybe been there too long, but he had the, the baton of death where you'd be talking to your buddy or something like this and you'd hear this whoosh go by your ear. And it was, he, he had really accurate baton. For <laughs> Yeah, so he straightened up. He didn't encourage any of that kind of stuff. Uh, He wanted it to be— Play
0: the notes on the paper. But
1: you know, to his credit, he had a much larger band, and it was a different situation. But it definitely soured my experience with the band, and I I didn't play more than a year and a half with that. About that time, right about eighth grade, me and some buddies, we were all uh, hanging out. One guy had a guitar that was his brother, and he had an amp. Another guy had an old guitar laying around. One guy played drums, sort of. And I played keyboards. I had been playing keyboards throughout all the time. I would think, well, we should get a band. You know, let's form a band. And we all just would sit and talk and talk and talk and never really do anything. But then we finally got together one day and just started you know, playing the awful garage band stuff that everybody should do. And we had an absolute blast. And the guy who was supposed to play bass, he decided he wanted to play guitar. And he came, comes up to me and says, man, you should play bass. I've never played bass. And said, so, oh, it's, it's easy, man. You'll, you'll, you'll love it. So you got sold on it. So, yeah, he was like, yeah, you can be like Getty Lee and play keyboards and bass at the same time. And so I was like, okay, cool. So I ended up starting uh taking bass lessons up at the local music store that was that was that was it for me i just i fell in love with the instrument the role it played i think the first song i learned was uh twist and shout sure know, the beatles version yeah we did a lot of early beatles you know and i was like oh, that's so cool i love the way that right. works against uh, you know what the guitars are doing and the drums and the way it fits in. I just it just. Well, McCartney was pretty amazing at what he did. It was a great starting point. Yeah, yeah. just let's learn from one of the best. Yeah. and uh, he's one of the most melodic. Uh, right. And great tone, and everything. And yeah, it was a good start. And throughout high school, that was uh, we had that basic lineup, and we had a few different changes. And. I just, I really fell in love with the instrument. I would trade up to get a better instrument, do this, and, you know, ended up with a nice Yamaha that took me through college. But I started getting into, I was just learning all the time. And back then there was no internet. It was, you know, guitar magazines. Right. It was a small bass section in the back of a guitar player.
0: Yes, magazine. correct, correct.
1: So, still is. So, yeah, well, they have their own magazine now. I guess That's for true bass too. players. Yeah. But honestly, they just needed that small section in the back. But I remember Jeff Berlin being a writer, yeah. really following all these different players. And a friend of mine who was a year ahead of me in high school, a guy named Tim Fowler. He was this great jazz player. He started turning me on to Pat Metheny and uh, Jocko and—
0: Stanley Clark. Stanley
1: Clark. And, you know, I remember him taking me to, you know, let's go see Stanley Clark down at the State Fairgrounds. And and it was like, that was a mind-blowing— And this is up in Detroit. This is up in Detroit, yeah. Yeah. So the early 80s, the bass started really taking a more front role. So it was very appealing to me to see what all these different guys were doing and— but yeah, uh, Tim, he formed a little jazz band in high school, and he wanted me to play in that. So he, he made me a mixtape of songs to learn and kind of blew my mind that you could do all these different things with these instruments and these sounds and these you know, These are not just four or five chord changes. These are a lot more complex. To say it's. the least. Being a year ahead of me, he was going to go study uh, jazz, and he w- went down to North Texas. He's like, Mike, you got to come down. You're going to love it. Came down in the middle of winter uh, in Detroit in January. Spent the weekend with Tim, and people down here were wearing shorts and tank tops, and I was... Uh, you were sold. I was sold. And Denton itself was just, it's such a great little town in itself. It's a great college community. Yeah. And, and I, I didn't even bother applying to other schools. I you know, my, uh, had some friends who were going to Miami and Berkeley. So really, you so you were committed to music. As I was. I really wanted. Yeah, I I'd, I'd known since I was a kid that's what I wanted to do. Interesting. Seemingly came very easy to me. Uh, the reading was still never that. That part of my brain is still probably my weakest poor uh, musical part. And but
0: I assume North Texas
1: that that was kind I of had a required to, had, thing, right? Yeah. No, it was, that was my thing where I had to really uh, you know step up to the plate. It was never my uh, it was never my forte by any stretch you know i was going through some some old crates of music stuff that i had from college i was trying to find my my youngest son is uh, playing up right now so i was trying to find him some solo pieces i was going through some of my old notes and i was like oh yeah i used to actually know how to do all that stuff you know i, I could read i could dissect a bach piece i could do all that stuff and wow so at some point i learned something if i had to do it now it might take me a little while to remember so now somebody told me once
0: I don't know if this is true, you can confirm it or deny it, that when you show up at North Texas, sometimes they'll ask you, what's your instrument? And you'll tell them, and they'll say, well, by the way, you're now going to focus on this instrument. Did, did that kind of a thing ever happen to you, or were you a bassist from the day one when you walked in there?
1: Well, they didn't have an electric bass program, so I had to start playing upright. Okay. And so it was, I was studying classical uh, upright so that was that was an adventure as well i had taken a few lessons in, in high school you know because i knew i would have to start playing upright uh but i had a lot of catching up to do and right it was great though i mean upright that's the key to bass i mean if you can if you can manage your yourself on an upright bass everything else is kind of butter really because of the acoustic nature of the instrument you're Learning how to bring the most tone out of an acoustic instrument. And, and I started playing a lot of jazz uh, as well. Sure. Just because uh, that was my uh, my interest was to study jazz at North Texas. So as soon as I started getting getting around on the upright, all of a sudden, like, I found out that everybody needs a, an upright bass player at a jazz school. I, I was in like 11 combos my second year. I mean, I was playing with everybody. I was playing 11 hours a day. And, you know, fingers. You'll, get, and, you'll get good doing good. You get that. good like that. Yeah, it's amazing. 11 Do something hours. Over, yeah, I mean, it was, it was kind of insane, along with all the school stuff I was doing. I had all these outside small groups that I was playing with. And, and I wasn't great, but I was good enough. And then with all that experience, I was getting better at upright. And,
0: at, on a weekly basis, um, Yeah, um, yeah
1: but the the strength that you get from playing upright I mean, it's a physically hard instrument right. uh, to play so you learn how to maximize your technique for efficiency to get the most out of a note you know loudness without uh, giving yourself carpal tunnel without without really yeah without that's a huge issue as well but then i you know after playing upright for a while i'd go back to electric and was like oh this is nothing i could play it standing on my head but it was really great to get that experience and bring that into electric as well because it informs the way that you get a tone right like a lot of a lot of players are just they just kind of play they're not really thinking about how what parts of their fingers to use to get a certain tone correct and to bring out the most of a note one of the things that i did uh there's a great player out of fort worth you might know him uh, named drew phelps
0: know the name yeah
1: he said one day if you want to learn how to get the most out of an upright just sit here And pluck your E string at 60 beats per minute. Okay. And you try to get the most out of each note as you're playing. Boom. 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 And you try to make each note sound big and the same as the last one. Right,
0: same as the last one, right.
1: And just that one exercise, do that for 15, 20 minutes a day for a week or two uh, as a warm-up. Your tone, the, the tone that you're bringing out of that instrument, you can apply that to everything else. It, just in, it informs your ear and informs your technique. So that's one of the, I get students, first thing I tell them is, like, go start upright. Get some lessons, start playing upright, because it will improve every aspect of your ear, your musicianship, and your play, your, you know, even if you end up just playing electric bass, it's going to improve everything about your electric bass. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: Yeah, and it's it's fascinating you're talking about the different parts of your finger. I think it's Nathan East. uh, People, you out there may know him from playing with Eric Clapton for long, but I think he has long fingernails
1: so that he can get a different kind of a tone and a sound too. Right. I keep one part of my index finger a little bit longer on the edge for doing false harmonics and for times when I want to just get a little click out of a certain note. So I can. So I play with the pads most of the time on my fingers. Right. But every once in a while, I want to dig in, so I keep a little bit of edge on this one nail. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the nuances
1: of Just, playing the bass, nu- absolutely. The nuances that most people
0: don't—I mean, I, I, go, I go down rabbit holes. So, so now you're in North Texas. I think you start running into Andy Timmons some, or you get an introduction to Andy, right?
1: Yeah, I met Andy. I was getting introduced to all kinds of great players up there. Oh, but man. this guy shows up about a year after I'm there. I think he showed up 85, 86— he was playing in this band called Brinker, and they'd play locally. I kept hearing about, oh, you got to see this guitar player. you got to see this guitar player. Right. And so I finally went down, and they were playing at the Rock Bottom Lounge, I think, up there. And, and there it was. I mean, I was just like, okay, that guy is the package. He's, he's got everything. And had this phrasing, tone, musicality. He had all the jazz and classical in there as well. But he used it in a rock format. That was that was the edge, and that's kind of it. Was funny because I had this idea in my head. I want to learn all these things, but I was a rocker at heart. You know, right. I, I grew up on the Stones, Who, Zeppelin, and then I in high school I was really into punk rock. I was way into the Clash and. But festivals. all your education sounds like was jazz. So you're here. You're you're, so, you're getting deep into music theory so and all that y- stuff. Exactly. So, yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to learn as much as I could, but to take. And apply that more in a rock fashion moving forward. Here I saw this guy doing that. So I didn't meet him at that point. I only met him a couple years later at a jam session. The Brinker thing had fallen apart. He had talked to our our mutual friend, Rob Wexler, who played violin, but he hosted these uh, jam sessions at his house. Uh And he was looking for some players to, to play with, to maybe form something new. I got invited to one of these jam sessions. Because of our similar, we you know, we're both kind of from the Midwest. He's a little bit older than me, but we grew up on the same radio, basically. You know, music that we were listening to, the same bands that we're touring through. So there was a connection there as far as a mutual interest in music. We like all the jazz. We love all that. And the classical, it's it's amazing. But we wanted to, to play it in a rock format. So we had this jam session, and it was... I don't know how Andy felt about it, but it was amazing for me. I I I had a connection, yeah. And so I guess he I guess he thought that was I did okay. So because we kept playing together, and we would get together and like learn a couple of songs. Uh, You know, Satriani had just come out at that point. Eric Johnson, you know, you could just get the cassette tapes of Eric Johnson at that point. Uh, He hadn't put a record out. Tapes, I love it. So we were, we were learning all this material and, and then we would just jam and we'd try to find, you know, we'd just call up a drummer and we go set up out on Fry Street. And the, there's a place called The Zebra that would shop up there, and they'd give us an extension cord. And, and you'd be playing on the street. And we'd just play on the street. We would just jam. And well, there'd be awesome. about 50 people hanging around us, and you're just kind of hanging out in a Fry Street, you know, back in the old Fry Street days. We just had a lot of fun back in that that time. And then we eventually started booking a show. We uh, started doing working with Mitch Marine, uh, the drummer, who was in Brave Combo at the time. Okay. And one of our favorite drummers to play with, just his, an amazing energy. We would just kind of book a gig, and we'd play half jam, half rehearsed material. It kind of blew up pretty quick. We started within that year in 88, 89, selling out these little rooms, you know, three, 400 bet.
0: people. I bet you were.
1: That was the beginning of the Andy Timmons band. Shortly after that, he was offered the gig with Danger Danger.
0: Oh. he
1: He had just hooked up with Kramer Guitars. And they were looking to get him with a with a national act at that point, so they could, you know, they they knew they had the guy, they had their tiger, oh, Woods the guitar, you know, but okay. they, they needed to get him on a on a bigger stage, and he and Andy wanted to get on a bigger stage at that point too, and this band out in New York, nobody had heard of yet, uh, they had they had just signed a deal with I think Epic, so he went out there and he. Uh, did that for about four years, I think. But in between that time, he would come back. We would do a reunion gig, I guess, okay. uh, book a show up in Denton or in Dallas. And we'd also book some studio time. Uh, he was writing some songs, and we'd go in and we'd record two or three songs. After about three years of that, he finally moved back to Dallas. Hey, Sasha. <laughs> <laughs> Sasha and Muddy
0: are in the other room yeah. <laughs> enjoying, the, uh, enjoying the conversation.
1: And we decided to, you know, let's hey, let's keep the trio thing going. We got we had collected about an album's worth of material over that time. We mixed and mastered all that and put out the the first year Ecstasy record. I love it. So. Now playing in a
0: trio is a way different from playing in five, six, seven piece band. As a bassist, you know this brings up James Gang, brings up uh, Cream. You know sure. a lot of different three piece bands. In a sense, Led Zeppelin. What's your role in a three-piece versus your role in a five-piece? Does it change
1: Oh, absolutely. A basis? Absolutely. And it's, it took me a while to figure this out. You know, in the early days, I figured I had to play more notes to fill up that space, you know, because it's maybe not a keyboard player or another guitar player. In a three-piece, right? In yeah. A th- yeah, in a three-piece, it's just guitar-based drums, which gives you a lot of freedom. Right. How do you use that freedom? And so I was... You know, In the early days, it was like, yeah, let's play fast and a lot of notes and you know, fill up, that's how you fill up space. When I would go to record, it's like, okay, that doesn't sound very good. I need to just slow that down and play bigger notes that sound good. And I equate it to the role I see as the bass. Okay, I'll, I'll give you my, uh, my metaphor for bass. Please. If you imagine a large body of water. Okay. That's the bass. Now, let's say there's uh, some waves coming in you got these nice rolling waves. And that's, that's the drummer that's pushing the water and creating, you know, the bass and the drums are creating these perfect curls. Okay. And if you're doing it right, then everybody else can surf on that.
0: Oh, I like that. Um, I like that. Never heard that one.
1: So I, I really like a big, fat, wide sound uh, when I'm playing. That tends to, especially in a trio, that really tends to support what Andy's doing really well. He's moving around a lot. He's, he's covering uh, melody and harmonies. I've, I've really fallen in love with just a, a big fat tonic. And that locking in with the kick drum and just letting everybody surf on that.
0: And I think that carries over into your solos a little bit, I think, because I was watching, uh, re-watching some of your YouTube stuff like Ghost of You and Electric Gypsy where you've got some solos in there. Uh-huh. And they're not super busy. They're beautiful. They're graceful. They're... Uh, that, that was my impression. You're not you're not Thank you. You're not trying to play 10 million things in a minute and a half.
1: No, there's there's plenty of guys doing that. And I <laughs> uh, and, and you know in my 20s everybody I, I was kind of the you know slap happy guy that everybody else was, you know, digga, 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 in his Thumb, Thumbing your way through Thumb, over the But bay- and and you get an instant feedback from that from the audience. Hey, that's impressive. Right. But after a while, it's like, okay, no one really wants to hear the slap bass anymore. At least I didn't. Uh, I, I grew out of that. And, or maybe at a certain point in a certain song. But yeah, it doesn't yeah, need I to mean, be yeah, constant. For certain, yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. It was about the time I, I fell back into, I got my first Fender bass. Okay. And I had, I had been playing a, a, a Spectre up to that point. I had a Yamaha in high school. And then uh, in college, I ended up with a, a Spectre. The Spectre's a, a PJ setup. It's active okay. electronics. It's like it's a Rolls Royce kind of bass. It, it's beautiful and it's slick. It's got these beautiful curves to it. And, and it sounds amazing, but it's it's active. It doesn't have any dynamics to it. Interesting. There's neck through. It just, you hit a note and, you know, like the spinal tap, you know, you can go in the next room, come back, it's still playing. It's a great sound, but. Once I got a f- I got my first Fender P-Bass around 91, 92, uh, through this fire sale at Brook Mays, I, they, there was two burnt P-Basses from this fire that they'd had yeah. that they were getting rid of, all these instruments that were in this fire. And one, the body was burnt, and another one, the neck was burnt. And so I bought both of them. I think they were 25 bucks a piece.
0: I'm surprised they were even able to sell those. It, well, a-
1: they, they were just... Yeah, just giving, giving them away. Out. Yeah. yeah. Put the neck, the good neck on the good body, and right. that ended up being my first P bass. Instantly changed the way that I approached bass. Really, uh, it didn't have that top end that the Specter did. It didn't have the long sustain. It was had more of a thumpy, cool thing going on. Right, and right
0: the P bass.
1: And all of a sudden, it like took me back to Detroit, my Motown and rock and roll roots. Yes, that's my sound. All of a sudden, I just like oh, that's my yeah. sound. Yeah. Yeah, none of this. You know, that's that's. I've been doing the wrong thing.
0: I know what you're saying. Absolutely.
1: And the way the the sustain on a P bass, just a stock P bass, the stock bridge, no adding extra weight or anything like that. It's got the perfect amount of sustain. The note arrives a little slow. It holds out for just a little bit, then fades away, and it allows for space. It allows for a groove. And I was like, "That's it." I just, it, you know, it just, it just immediately clicked with me that, that that's where I wanted to head. Found myself. The P bass led me on this Fender trail of discovery. Ended up with a, a jazz bass a few a few years later. I started developing. When I had the Spectre, I was developing a, some solo pieces. Sure. And. Mm-hmm. And I would, this was, I guess, 92, 93. I would book uh, happy hours at, at local jazz club, you know, and play from 7 to 9 before the main acts would come in, just as a solo thing. Oh, cool. And on the bass. On the, just on the bass. And, oh, I love and, that. Yeah, talk about a hard sell. Um, well, it's
0: easier than selling the uh, two hours of a
1: drummer. I'll say <laughs> right, that much.
0: <laughs> <sure>.
1: <laughs> I was playing with Sarah Hickman at that time, and I would see her play solo, and she could fill a room. I never had that experience of trying to entertain an audience for a set by myself because I'm always playing in a group. I wanted to I wanted to try to push myself to do that. I was not gifted with a with a singing voice, unfortunately. Amy Cornell could maybe help you, you know if you Yeah, want, no, she, I need to start taking lessons from Amy. <laughs> She's done wonders with my kids. Do you know how to get around on the bass? L- let me explore this for a while. So yeah started figuring out what works and what doesn't and really uh, boiling down compositions to two or three notes at a time. And Ooh. within the the range of the instrument, you know, if you're playing down in the low part of the instrument, it gets very muddy, but there's this beautiful mid range to the upper range that's in more in the cello. Okay. And so I started listening to how uh, some cello pieces and how th- what, how many notes they can get away with and things like that. And just started exploring chord arrangements, learning, learning all my jazz chords and, and what, okay, how far can I get down where this seventh still works? Right. And um, how, how much can I push that envelope of mud versus tonality? You know, it's, it's, it's tricky. That's this tone quest that I've been on is, is trying to find that sweet spot of, of tonality.
0: You promised me you'd play some music for us, which is fantastic. Do you have something in mind that you could yeah, play c- for us? Yeah, I
1: can give you a good example of that. Uh, all right. It's a, it's a piece I play with Andy. It leads very well into one of our songs uh, called Electric Gypsy. It's in the same key. So I've, I, I play that with Andy all the time, and it's, uh, it's a nice piece. Uh, I love it. That I wrote for, for my wife.
0: Well, let's, I'm going to let uh, Mike set up for that, and then we're going to listen to this piece. All right? Thanks, Mike. Hey, Mike, thanks a lot. That was great. At the end of the show, if you m- wouldn't mind, if you do one more piece, that would be really great. I'd appreciate sure. it. All right, sure. love it. Now, we've talked about Andy and talked about some of the different artists you've worked with, but you are also gotten very well known as a producer and an engineer. Can you take our audience into that side of your world a little bit?
1: Sure. I was always the guy in the band that knew how to set up the PA. You know, I figured all that stuff out knew what EQ did and, you know, gain structure. While I was at North Texas, uh, it was poor college uh, days, I was looking for ways to maybe pick up some some extra money. I'll bet. I knew a bit about running sound, and then I knew a couple other guys that had some gear. So we kind of formed a little little sound company. And gotcha. at that time in Denton and in Dallas, it was the early Deep Elm days, it was about 86, 87. Yeah. The clubs didn't have PAs. If you booked a gig with your band, you had to bring your own PA, which is kind of a a strange concept now. But nobody, you know, bands didn't have their own PAs. And so I've kind of found a little niche with that. Oh, you sure did. So you became the go-to for all that. So, yeah, I I started uh, working with uh, local band Ten Hands, who became really big back in the day, and and a lot of other local bands. So I was was piling everything in my old... uh, 76 Buchlis Sabre, which with the big trunk. Still had it. Okay. Driving down to Deep Ellum from from Denton, setting up the PA and driving back and then doing some gigs. uh, So I kind of cut my teeth doing that. And then once I moved to Dallas, 10 Hands would hire me when they played Dada, they had a PA, and then they would hire me to come run their sound. Because you knew how
0: to, you really knew how to do the EQ and get that right. I knew
1: their material, I knew where delays and reverbs and things like that. So. Shortly after that, uh, Dada hired me to do some sound on on, uh, their open mic night. And then eventually I worked my way up to doing weekends, Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays. And I would substitute over at Trees when they needed. So I, I was doing a lot of live sound at that point. Around that same time, a similar situation came up to where I wanted to get more into recording And I had my four track that I'd had since high school, and I'd made a bunch of recordings on that. And uh, so that process was familiar to me. And at that time, I was also as a player doing some studio work. Sure. Starting to get hired to to play on people's records or uh, commercial spots, that kind of stuff. So I was always, I was the guy who would finish his part and I would Hang out in the back and just watch these engineers work. I would stay throughout the session. Most most guys would pack up their stuff and leave. I was right. there. I would stay and ask questions when it was appropriate. So but you see, were con- you were consuming what was going on. I really wanted to learn. I really did. I was real fortunate. I got to work with some great engineers back in the day. Dave Castell, Rob Wexler. They they really knew how to run a session. And this was back in the tape day. You know, it's back in the tape days. Wow. No computers. Reel to reel. Reel to reel. You know, the engineers had to know what they're doing. The musicians had to know what they were doing. You know, everybody had to step it up. So I, I I learned a lot from those guys, and I wanted to get into my own situation. So similar to the sound situation, where I knew some guys that had some gear, I I knew some guys and girls that had some gear. Just made the deal where, hey, let me put it together at my place. I'll record you guys for free, and any money I make as an independent guy, I'll split it up with you guys. Let's let's do this, cool. right? You know, because Individually, we didn't have enough gear to do anything, but together we could.
0: You could pull it off. And we had uh,
1: my one friend; she had a sixteen-track reel-to-reel. Another guy had the mics and stands and some monitors. I just poning up with some headphones and uh, you know any cabling, yep, mic stands, that kind of stuff. Anything I could. To fill in where, where we needed the gaps, started recording bands. I had a setup over off of Lower Greenville at this house that we were renting with about three or four other musicians. I think I would book an eight hour day for 150 bucks. I had everybody coming through there. I bet you did. It was a great deal. That's how I learned how to record and made some great records. Calk Record, we started working with Andy. And that's about the same time I started working the band that uh, called Ugly Mustard. Okay. I was, I was working with uh, this guy, Eric Trent, and he had come up with this industrial stuff. He was in a band called Sheer Threat, and he was working on the side doing this uh, keyboardy industri- industrial stuff, Nine Inch Nails-ish. Yeah. And he was looking for a place to record. I was looking to get my MIDI skills up, so we just kind of traded skills. I learned a lot about MIDI. He got to record his stuff, and, and then we eventually formed this band, Ugly Mustard, and that that took up a better part of the 90s for me. Did it? Uh, yeah, it was, it was a blast. Andy and I we were playing at that time. He was still out in New York. He, he's a busy guy. He, and I was, uh, I was doing Ugly Mustard at that point. So you are coordinating gigs, basically. So
0: when Andy was in town, yeah, you yeah. could do some stuff with Andy, and yeah, then yeah. when he wasn't, you could do the Ugly Mustard thing.
1: A- every once in a while, there'd be a double gig where I'd uh, Oops. Uh, play a gig with Ugly Mustard, and then Elizabeth would be driving me up to the, to the basement where I had a gig with Andy, and I'd be changing clothes in the car. And, uh, <laughs> working on the Ugly Mustard record really enhanced— I was working with some great musicians that kind of put me on the map as an engineer— and producer i got the recording bug i had it at that point just started collecting gear and you know that was kind of a focus of you know if i had any extra money it's like well what kind of cool gear can i buy yes some of my engineer friends started turning me on to okay well here's what you need to get so i started collecting you know i'd I'd save up some money and i'd get a a pair of neve preamp the, the good stuff and I,
0: I can attest, folks, the, wall, the compression the, wall yeah, that I'm so, looking for so this is, is, <laughs> is very big.
1: It's, <laughs> over, it's over six feet tall. I love looking at it. The pro gear, the, the stuff that I've, I've been collecting, is stuff that's uh, been used on classic records throughout the history of recording. Ah. I'll have my eye on a certain piece. And with the Internet now, it's, everything's way more expensive than it was when I first started doing it because people have caught on to the, the classic gear and the vintage bugs it kind of hit everybody. Right. The fun of having some real knobs to twist and <laughs> having something in real time and the sound is it you get something different. This could be this could be another discussion for uh, another few podcasts, the digital versus analog all that kind of stuff. Yes. That, stuff. that whole but battle. I, yeah,
0: let's save that detail battle, yeah, but
1: it's uh, for me I learned how to do everything in the analog world and I eventually You know, my studio, as like everybody else's, I started moving more and more to computers. Right. I found I was having a lot less fun. My workflow decreased, got slower instead of faster because there's all these different options. Oh, interest. The sound wasn't as good to me. Fascinating. uh, Of the digital stuff. And so when I started putting this version of the studio together, I wanted to kind of go back in time, but in the right way. I mean, you have to have digital... But I wanted to have some knobs to grab and twist. Instead of mixing with a mouse, I can grab a fader and turn. Okay, I need to turn the kick drum up. Okay, I just turn. I'd reach around and I grab this fader and I right. turn the kick drum up. Or it needs a little more top end. I just grab the EQ. For me, that's my workflow. Yeah. I like working like that. I get that instant thing. Instead of paging through something and finding the kick drum channel and moving the mouse. now that's not quite. Yeah, I listen to it a few times. It's actually slower and more inefficient to me. In my workflow to do it that way right there were all of my favorite records were done before the digital age
0: audio wise you could hear the difference
1: there's absolutely a difference one of the things that is popular now they record everything flat into the computer no compression eq because they'll play with it once they get it they'll in they'll play supposedly. with it later they add all these plugins and they sit there and they play with the plugins and uh, and it sound, they get a great result. It's not a bad result that they come up with. But it's with. not real. Yeah, there, there's that. But to me, the bigger issue is it all sounds the same because okay. everyone's using the same plugins. Now, you know the difference between if you're plugging into an amp and you've got some pedals, if you're plugging into a computer and doing the same thing like your amp and your pedals and just the cabling you're using and the, uh, uh, the what tubes do you have in your amp and how right. is, is your electric current a little hot so maybe your amp's running a little different. All these little variances that make up a unique tone. Right. Uh, and putting a mic in front of it, what kind of mic you're using, how far is it yeah. away, uh, what part of the cone are you doing it. All these things play into a unique tone, whereas if you're plugging directly into a computer, you don't have those options. And, yeah, and that's it. That's it. Most of the music you hear now is done in a similar fashion. But that's why there's the uniqueness to the recordings that were done before the digital age. They just had what they had, you know, good, bad, or otherwise, that's what they had. There's a character to it. There's a warmth to it. There's a sincerity to it that I think is getting mixed out. But I have my reasons for, for running this gear. It works for me. Like I said, I like looking at the VU meters popping up and down.
0: <laughs> so... Who are some of the artists that you're working with right now?
1: Right now, still doing a lot of stuff with Andy. We did the last, uh, I engineered the guitar and co-produced Resolution. Right. That was the first time we'd worked together on a record with me as an engineer and a co-producer. From there, we've done a couple of records since then. I kind of have Andy in mind when I'm buying specific gear, knowing he's kind of stress tests everything. He's got an amazing ear. We get very, very detail-oriented. i bet you, you do. Uh, so we, we spend a lot of time just chasing down a guitar tone that's going to work for a section of a song. For me, it's a blast. I like, I like chasing those, those rabbits. And
0: get that tone just right. And
1: get, get it right from the start. You know, I mean, I have all this great gear, but it's really it's, it's out there that I get the tone. Yeah. You know, And then you can massage it a little bit with all this stuff. Get it right from the source. That's an old-school way to do things, but it yields a much richer result. Good players with good instruments will beat out any plug-in any day of the week. Right. So. This
0: has been great, Mike. We've covered a lot of ground, and in all honesty, I think there's a lot more <laughs> ground that we can cover. And, and if it's okay with you, I definitely want to come back. And we'll do another gig down the road, because I think you've got some fascinating stories to tell, and and both from a artist perspective as well as from the producer-engineer side of the house.
1: Well, I appreciate it. This has been a blast.
0: If you can, this would be great if you close us out with another tune. We've covered a lot of ground. I look forward to getting back with you. And talking more about music and delving into the wall of compression and this mixing board and just uh, this this is just fascinating you're, you're gonna enjoy the pictures folks and the video that I'm going to post up on Instagram here thanks Mike so much for your time and we'll see you again down the road
1: no, it's been my pleasure man thank you
0: you got it adios <laughs> Thank you. Wasn't that fantastic? Believe me, sitting there watching his finger work on those songs was a real treat. His playing was inspiring. While it definitely did some level setting for me on the skill set of a professional musician versus a weekend warrior like myself. (laughs) You may have recognized that last song. It was Mood for a Day by Yes. The musical piece in the interview he wrote for his wife Elizabeth and is used in Andy Timmons' song Electric Gypsy. He actually named the song Elizabeth One. That was an in-depth interview. I learned a ton. He even took notes. Hey, be sure to pick up one of Andy and Mike's albums, Resolution, That Was Then, This Is Now, and any of their other great cuts. Before we close out this episode 29 of the Dogger and Muddy Music Podcast, I want to do another reach out. In reviewing the statistics on our show, it is no surprise that Texas is our largest listener base. But I did find it fascinating that our number two listener audience comes from Nevada and our number three from Maryland. So Muddy and I want to shout out to those of you from Nevada and Maryland and ask you to send an email to us at Doug at com. Again, Doug at com. We will add you to our email distribution list so that we can keep you up to date on all Dogger and Muddy happenings. Anyone else that wants to be added to our distribution list? please send us an email as well. Y'all have a great week, and we will talk again soon. Amy?
1: For ongoing updates, follow Dogger and Muddy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Till next time. Adios. I
0: cannot feel the speed?
1: is underwater Drifting in the open sea Or well, is this a dream cannot see or believe To trust is to falter And to take its too seeds is this a dream? I won't...